right, good morning everyone. Uh, it's good to see all of you all back here in church. Um, now, I, before I actually begin my sermon, uh, we have some uh, what we call public uh, uh, safety announcement. All right. Um, this is, uh, I think all of you all know that the uh, COVID-19 is getting a bit more serious uh, in our country. So as a church, especially since two churches have already been affected, uh, as a church, we want to take a bit more uh, precautionary steps. So here are some, you know, rules and rec- or some pre- precaution and some prevention steps. All right. Now, uh, it used to be you enter the hall and you sanitize your hand by choice. Now, it's sanitized by force, okay? You have to sanitize your hands, otherwise you're not allowed to attend, attend this service, okay? So, uh, the ushers uh, will provide you hand sanitizers. Please sanitize your hands uh, before you come into this worship hall. Um, if you are sick, if you're having fever or flu, we would encourage you, even though you have the heart to come to church, if you're sick, we would encourage you, uh, please refrain from doing so in this particular time. No one will condemn you for not coming to church if you are sick, all right? In fact, everyone will praise you for doing that. That's a good move. In fact, this morning, Charlie and Eden and Mark, they are not able to attend because Charlie is down with a fever and a cough as well. Uh, so we want to keep them in their press. Um, so if you are experiencing symptoms like that, please do not come to church as well. Um, if you've been traveling overseas, and this I know it's a, a little bit sticky and we don't, we don't want to cause panic, but if you have been traveling overseas, especially certain countries with high risk of uh, COVID-19 infection, uh, we would encourage you, and this is not us giving this uh, uh, rule, but this is actually a directive from the MOH. If you are coming back from these countries, you know, do your best to quarantine yourself for 14 days, even though uh, you do not have any symptoms yet. All right, but you know, do yourself a favor, do everyone else a favor, um, quarantine yourself for. Uh, 14 days, okay? And when I say quarantine, it doesn't mean you, you don't come to church, but then you go to the shopping mall and all this. No. You stay at home, you lock yourself in the room, and you really self-quarantine, all right? Um, as a church, if we do come, you will notice that I don't shake any of your hands. It's not because I'm unfriendly. It's because... Let us try to minimize uh, physical touch, you know, uh, handshakes, hugs, um, and things like that because these things, uh, you know, can easily help spread uh, virus. And all these things doesn't come from us. It comes from the MOH, all right? These are just some steps that we can do to prevent, all right, the virus from actually spreading even further, okay? Um, If you are worried about... um, you know, the virus being in church or whatnot, if you're not aware of, uh, or sometimes, you know, people have this worry, what if someone is in church and someone, you know, has come into contact with someone else? If you are worried and you feel hesitant to come to church, well, um, go with your gut, all right? It's okay if you feel that, you know, for this time being, you want to skip church, um, you're worried, well, it's okay. We have online uh, sermons to cater for your Sunday service needs. Uh, MEC will still go on as usual, and you'll be able to hear our sermons through the podcast. Of course, the podcast is not live. You have to wait probably two or three days after Sunday in order to catch up with the sermon uh, on Sunday, all right? If everyone is not worried and you feel that you 
dare to come to church, well, by all means, do come. Join us for worship. And like I see everyone, is, most people are doing here, you can put on a mask, practice some very simple uh, hygiene and uh, hand sanitization, and I think everyone will be fine. But most importantly, let's always remember to pray. Uh, pray especially for those who are affected by this virus. Pray for the, uh, the health department who is actually trying their very best to combat this. And not just in Malaysia, but all around the world. Let's, let's keep everyone in prayer. Because it's not just the people who are sick who are affected. Even the healthy are affected as well. You know, um, economy is bad, you know. Um, I think for those who are in the tourism and the airline business, I think business is bad for all of you all. For those who are in the trades and, and, um, and even other businesses, it's all affected. You know, everyone is affected by this uh, pandemic. So let's keep everyone in prayer. Let's pray that you know, um, there will be a, a solution to this problem. All right? Um, but um, this morning, as, uh, with, with this out of the way, let's continue with our sermon. Uh, today I'm going to wrap up this sermon series that I've started. Someone made a comment, this is the longest uh, series you know, I've ever preached. Four parts, most of my sermon series goes either two or only three parts for the most. Um, Daniel has already preached half of my sermon, so today I actually just need to preach 15 more minutes and then that's fine. He's already done most of the job for me and I'm really amazed he did it just like on the spot. You know, I, I spent a whole week trying to figure out what to preach from this passage, but he did it on the spot in 15 minutes and he preached half of my sermon. So I think STM really taught him well, didn't really teach me that well. Now, um, today, uh, the, the passage that I'm going to preach to you from is taken from 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1, verses 3 to 10. And I'd like all of you to turn to this passage together and let's read this scripture passage together because I feel that it's really meaningful that we read the Word of God together because for some of you, this may be the very first time you open your Bible and read your Bible throughout the week. So please open your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and we're going to read all the way to verse 10. Now I'm reading from the ESV version. So if you have your Bibles, please, uh, your handphone app, please switch to the ESV version. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 to 10. Everyone got it? Yep. All right, let's read together loud and clear, all right? Verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory. And has an excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of this sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. 
Now, the epistle of Peter, the, both the epistles, first and second Peter, they are very interesting epistles because, for one, it's written by Peter, the disciple of Jesus, the, the, the person who has the closest relationship with Jesus. You know, he was the only one who experienced, uh, you know, Jesus in a way that other disciples never did. He was there along with two other disciples at the transfiguration of Jesus. You know, he was the only disciple that was rebuked by Jesus multiple times, you know. And he, he was the only disciple that had Jesus call him Satan. You know, remember the incident where Peter tried to stop Jesus from going to the cross and, Pe and Jesus literally looked at, G at Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You know, if I were to say that to any one of you right now, I would not be the pastor in this place anymore. But Jesus spoke that to him. But Peter, it surprisingly, still remained a very loyal disciple of Jesus. Peter had his weakness as well because uh, when Jesus was arrested, you know, remember before um, Jesus actually was arrested, Peter made this very bold declaration uh, in front of Jesus, telling Jesus that I will die for you. And Jesus looked at him and said, you know what, Peter, don't be so quick to say all these things because tonight you will betray me three times. You will, you will deny knowing me. And Peter said, no, no, it's never going to happen to me. But it did. Peter was the only disciple that denied Jesus. Of course, Judas, he betrayed Jesus, but that's another story altogether. Peter denied Jesus. Peter, however, was repentant and Jesus forgave him. Many other things that Peter experienced. For instance, he was the only disciple that walked on water even though it was just for a few minutes. But he was the only disciple that experienced the first-hand miracle of Jesus being able to walk on the water. And here, when Peter writes this epistle to the, 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 the church, to the believers in Asia, we do not know where he was writing to. We do not know which specific region in Asia he was writing to. But when he wrote these two epistles, the epistle of 1 Peter and then the, the second epistle of Peter, you can, when you read the words and the, the way he writes this epistle, it almost sounds as if it was Jesus talking to the believers. Because Peter had this very intimate and very close experience of Jesus. And that's why he knew the heart of Jesus. He knew the thoughts of Jesus. He knew what Jesus would actually say to the church in that particular time, in that particular context. And knowing Jesus so well, he wrote from his heart to the believers. And that's why when we look at the epistle of Peter, it sort of stands out from the other epistles. I'm not saying the other epistles are not applicable or they are not you know, so, so, uh, so good or, or whatnot. But what I'm saying is Peter, the way he writes his, his letter and the way he teaches the believers, it is so simple. It is so easy to just take and apply it into your life because he writes it in the simplest of languages. And in this particular passage, Peter is talking about glorifying God. 
and how our lives can glorify God. In fact, this whole sermon series has been on this one single theme. How can we glorify God in our lives? And glorifying God is not just a one-time action. It's not just something we do occasionally. I've said this throughout my sermon. We have to glorify God continuously all throughout the days of our lives. And here in the second epistle of Peter, Peter focuses on what God has given to us to help us live a life that can glorify Him. And so sometimes we may think when we read this passage, oh, it's just again about what I must do. But no, Peter is telling us today what God has given to us so that we can live a life that glorifies Him. And today I'm going to bring across two points for you of what God has given to us. And the first thing we can read from verses, uh, verse 3 is this. He says in verse 3, God's divine power, or written in the epistle, is His. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. You know, the key word is underlined there. The, the key phrase is underlined there. God in His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him that is God who called us to His own glory and His excellence. Now, Peter is very straightforward in this sentence. He says, just looking at the last part of this sentence, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, the, in the Bible, there is a constant and consistent call for believers to live for the glory of God. There is a constant call for believers to live up to par with the standards that God has set for us. From the Old Testament, the moment God brought the Israelites out of Egypt and the moment He was about to establish them as a nation, God gave them the law. God made a covenant with them and God made them promise Him that they would do as they promised. There is a certain standard of excellence. And God called the Israelites to proclaim His glory throughout the nations. God called on the Israelites to live up to the standard of excellence so that their lives will glorify God. And this is our calling as believers as well. God wants us to live for His glory and God wants us to live up to the standards of excellence that He has set for us. But when God calls us to something, He doesn't just give us an order, but He helps us to achieve whatever He has called us to do, to live for His glory and to live up to the standard of excellence. And what does Peter say? How does God help us? And he says here, His divine power has given to us or has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. What does it mean? It means this, God has given us power. And when Peter writes, in His divine power, He has given us all things. 
What he means is this, God has given us all power. He, did, he has not just given us what we call a limited power or, or a discounted power or, or maybe a power that is way, way lesser than the power that He has. In His divine power, He has given us all the power that we need in order to make right choices, in order to live a godly life, in order to live for His glory in order to live up to the standard of excellence that God has set. Peter writes two things. This power that God gives to us is for two reasons. One, pertaining to life. The second one, pertaining to godliness. Very quickly, what does it mean? Now, I don't know if it's a bit too small because on my screen it looks a little bit big, you know. But then when it comes up here, it's really small, it's really tiny, and I apologize for that. Usually my font choices are always very good, but I don't know what happened to me this week. Life and godliness. There are two definitions, two very uh, distinct definitions, and two very distinct reasons why God has given us His power. And the first one is life. Life represents the choices that we make. You know, all throughout the Bible, there is this very consistent theme of life and death. You look at Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. And, and, and before the Israelites entered the promised land, Moses spoke to them the words of God. And Moses told them, I set before you. And this is actually the word of God to Moses, to the Israelites. And he says, I set before you life and I set before you death. And then Moses concludes by saying, choose life. Jesus in John chapter 10 verse 10 repeats the same theme of life and death. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come to give you life. And in other parts of the gospel, when Jesus teaches his disciples, he uses this similar you know, imagery of life and death. And he, and he always presents the disciples with the two paths theme. I like to talk about this. The two roads theme of life and you can only choose one. One leads to life and the other leads to death. Accompanied with life are things like blessings, righteousness and the protection of God. Accompanying death is things like sin, destruction. And it's not difficult to actually interpret the meaning of life and death. Because to choose life is to choose God. To choose life is to choose Jesus for the rest of your life. To choose life is to choose salvation. But then again, it is a choice for us to make. And this is a choice that each one of us must consciously make each and every day. And why I say this, why I say that we need to make this choice every single day, because every day the devil will come up to us and present us with a different option apart from life. The devil will present us with a different option, an option that seems a little bit easier, an option that seems a little bit smoother, an option that might even give you immediate answers. But remember what Jesus told His disciples, the narrow path, 
the path that is the hardest to walk, the path that sometimes has the most resistance, that is the path that leads to life. What did Jesus speak of the broad path? The broad path is a path that is easy, it's broad. But Jesus said this very specifically, many who have gone through that path have gone on to their destruction. Life and death. And in order to consistently make the right choice every day, that is the choice of life, God gives us His power to help us make this decision. God gives us His power. He gives us the necessary information we need to make a right choice. You know, without information, we can never make a right choice, right? You know, because both paths seem very attractive. Both paths seem walkable. And it seems very hard to make the choice, but God has given us power. He has given us information. Jesus never once presented the two-path system to His disciples without explaining the consequences of both paths. And at the end of His explanation, He will always encourage and, and tell His disciples, choose life. Moses, in his you know, encouragement and exhortation to, to the Israelites, told them, there's these two paths choose life. I pray that in our everyday lives, we'll be able to make the right choices. I pray that we will make choices that leads us on the path of life, on the path of God's blessing, on the path of God's protection. God has given us all the knowledge and all the understanding that we need in order to make this right choice. All we need to do is to make the right choice. God gives us power to make choices pertaining to life. A second reason pertaining to godliness. What, is, what does this word godliness mean? Is it the same as holiness? Somewhat the same. Godliness, the definition of godliness is to conform to the laws and the wishes of God. To conform. I remember earlier on in this sermon series, I talked about how we have to discipline our desires, shape our desires into the will of God. And basically, godliness is this to transform ourselves so that we can fit ourselves into the mold that God has set for us. To conform ourselves, our desires, our wishes to the laws of God. And how to do this? Again, God gives us the power to do so. God gives us the power to say no to sin. God gives us the Holy Spirit to teach us in our everyday lives what is right, what is wrong. God gives us 
the information from the Word of God. God speaks to us and all these things are God-given power to help us live a godly life. And because of this power that God has given to us, I would say the law of God, the Ten Commandments that we read of in the New Testament is actually doable because God's power is in us, helping us to live out His law, helping us to live up to the standards of excellence that God has set for us. You know, I've heard a lot of times people say this, you know, we can never fulfill every single law. We can never fulfill every single commandment in the Ten Commandments because we are weak. And I've heard this coming from the pulpit as well. And growing up, I used to think like that. I used to think that, you know what? The, very, the, the, the most basic commandments of thou shalt not lie. Because I've heard someone told me this. You can never actually not lie. Because if you do tell people that I have never lied, you are a liar yourself. Well, let me tell you this. God has never created a law that is not doable. God has never created a law that is not doable. All the laws in the Ten Commandments that God wrote for the Israelites, that God gave to the Israelites, they were all doable. Otherwise, why would God give them something that He knew that they could not live up to? All the laws are doable. And it's a mindset that we need to change. Because a lot of times, we cannot live up to God's standards of excellence. A lot of times, we cannot live in a godly manner. We cannot live up to the standards of godliness simply because we keep telling ourselves, I cannot do it. No one can do it. Everyone has to lie. Everyone has to cheat a little bit occasionally. Everyone has to covet occasionally. No one can actually do... Well, the truth is this, and I think it's time for us to have a mindset change. God has given us the power to be able to live out His commandments. God has given us the power, and His power enables us to live up to His standard of excellence. The only question now is this, are you willing to do it or are you not willing to do it? You know, the other night, I was sharing this point with my wife because she was actually writing a sermon on the a Ten Commandments as well. And I was actually telling her this point because she was going along the lines of actually how can we ever live up to the standards of the Ten Commandments. And I told her, I said, well, it's actually doable. And she said, don't lie like you. I said, yes, it's true. It's doable. He said, okay, you tell me, have you ever told a lie? I said, in the past, yes. When I was a little kid growing up, yes. He said, you see? I said, but now I can tell you very honestly, I have not. And she said, you're lying. <laughs> you see, that's how my wife looks at me, you know. Terrible. I'm just joking. But she said, you're lying. I say, it's true. I say, actually think of this. Think of it in this way. What makes you think you cannot not tell a lie? I say, a lot of times we tell lies for only one reason. To 
to escape the consequences of the truth. Right? Some people would lie because they've stolen money and they have to lie to get themselves out of that sticky situation. You know? That's the only reason why you lie, to escape the consequence of truth. And I said, that is why, for that reason, it is actually doable to not lie. As long as you are willing to face up with the consequences of your actions, and most of the time it's negative, if you are willing to face up with the consequence of your actions, you can actually not tell a lie. And you can always walk in truth. The Ten Commandments is doable. When the Bible says, thou shalt not murder. I think all of us can do that very easily. But then take it a step further because in, in the New Testament, Jesus then looks at his disciples and says, if anyone has anger, anyone has hate, he has committed murder. And then we look at ourselves and say, nah, no way I can keep this commandment. Well, yes, there is a way. And Jesus was actually telling his disciples, you've got to get all those hatred out of you. You've got to get those unforgiveness out of you. And when you can do that, Hey, you're actually leaving out the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not covet. It's doable as well. Be contented with what you have. A lot of time we are very discontented because we are always coveting what other people have. Oh, he's got an Air Jordan. I want that Air Jordan. Even though I've got 10 Nikes in my home, I need one more. Oh, that guy's got this huge car. I have already three huge cars. I need one more huge car. Thou shalt not cover. It's, it's doable. There's even a law that says, do not envy. Do not be envious of what other people have. It's doable. And I basically told my wife that night that all the Ten Commandments, or even more, because if you look at the book of Leviticus, every single law that God wrote, God told Moses to write for the Israelites, every single law is actually something that is doable. But a lot of times, I don't know, maybe it's because of modern thought, modern theology and then we give ourselves this excuse that actually I cannot live up to what God has said for me. Nah, I cannot do it. You see, I have to tell a lie every single day. But I'm changing, I'm trying my best. But when I do tell a lie, I, I assure myself, I'm weak, I'm a weak Christian, I'm changing, I'm trying to change, but are you really putting in any effort to change? That's the question that you have to ask yourself. You know, just by saying, I want to go to the gym every single day, it's not progress, you know. Just by saying, I want to exercise every single day, it means every day you wake up, I need to exercise today. But then the whole day goes by and you've not done a single exercise, a single workout. 
that's not a life change. And that's the same thing with godliness. Just by saying, I want to live a holy life, but not actually living out the holy life, is not walking in holiness. You see, sometimes we don't really see how the law is doable because we haven't really made an effort to live out the law in our lives. Peter tells us, Peter tells the believers of his time, walk in godliness. Live up to the standard of excellence. You see the word he used here, excellence. Live up to that standard. Conform your desires. Shape your life into that of God. And how can you do that successfully? Rely on the power that God has given to you. Rely on the Holy Spirit that speaks to you each and every day. The Holy Spirit is in each and every one of us. The Holy Spirit is not just evident when you can speak in tongues. The Holy Spirit is in each and every one of you. And in fact, this is the topic we're going to be studying on the uh, 11th of May during the whole day Bible study. So if you're really interested to know more about the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, I will encourage you to come. Now, this is a little bit of advertisement as well. You see how I gelled it into my sermon. <laughs> it's a whole day Bible study, 9 to, 5 8, 9 to 5 p.m. And I'll be teaching in English over at the OMEC Hall. All right? So if you're free, do sign up. It's free of charge. There'll be three meals provided, breakfast, lunch, and tea break. It's a very good deal, right? Free of charge, whole day. And on top of that, you get physical food, you get spiritual food as well. All right? See? The Holy Spirit is given to us. Use, harness the power of the Holy Spirit in your lives. Make use of this power that God has given to you. Make use of the power that God has given to you. You know, the second thing that Peter talks about is found in verses 5 to 8. And, and he says this in verse 5 to 8 onwards, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For this, if these qualities are yours, and are increasing. They keep you from being ineffective or fruitful. You see, I, I like to tell people, sometimes people ask me, what is your job as a pastor? You know, what is your job as a pastor? I like to tell them this. My job as a pastor is to promote to you the gospel of Jesus Christ and to promote to you what I would call this, the supplements of your faith. <laughs> what is a supplement? A supplement, and this, and this is taken from a dictionary, not any theological dictionary, just taken from a common dictionary found in Google. A supplement is something added on to something in order to complete it or enhance it. And I'm sure all of you would know supplements are what we would say in simpler terms, add-ons to your daily nutrition or to your daily intake of food. 
in this time of virus and things like that, you walk into any pharmacies, you know, the promoters are all there in their masks and with their hand sanitizers, uh, giving you free spray of a hand sanitizer, and then also promoting their products, you know, what multivitamins you need to take, what extra things you need to take. And, and, and a lot of times, the prices are way more expensive than it used to be before the virus time has started. And, and people know that by taking supplement, you are actually going to improve your health you're actually going to add on to your, to, your, to your diet something that is good to enhance your health, to make your immunity system better and stronger. And this is the same thing with our faith. A lot of times as Christians or maybe as new believers, we think that just believing in Christ is sufficient. I have done everything I need as a Christian. That is, to believe in Christ and maybe to be baptized. And then that's it. I don't need to do anything else anymore. Well, of course, you do not have to work for your salvation. And let me, let, let me get this very, uh, let me put this very clear to all of you. I'm not promoting that you need to work for your salvation. But our faith does not just end at our salvation. In fact, that is just the starting point. Because the moment we believe in Christ, we are placed in this new life. And now, according to the epistle of Peter, in this new life, it is like a blank slate, a new person. What are you going to add on to this new person to make it better, to enhance your spiritual life, to grow in spiritual maturity, to grow in your faith? And here, Peter presents to you seven faith supplements. This is very similar to Paul's, you know, the nine fruit of the Spirit. But this is Peter's seven faith supplements that all of you as believers need to possess and need to add on in your life. And you know, if you notice something very interesting, he uses the word and a lot of times, you know. I mean, let me just show you this. He says this, to make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. I'm not going to read all of it. It's a bit tiring to do so. But basically, if any of you are English teachers here, you would say, this is a very bad sentence, you know, structure. You know, you could have just put a comma and don't have to add the N in front of every single faith supplement. There's a reason for it because in the Greek language, the word N is this word chi, K-A-I. Or, or in Greek alphabet, it's kappa, alpha. I forgot the last one. Iota. Chi. Chi has two Two, two definitions. The first one, it can be used as but, B-U-T. Alright? And, and but represents, you know, something more negative. Kai, another definition for this word kai is the, to be used as N. Now, 
using this word kai, this Greek term kai, in different grammar situations. Let me just make this a little bit simpler for you to understand. In different grammar situation, would then give a different meaning altogether. And here, when Peter uses the word kai, he's saying this, when you have virtue, make sure virtue continues to remain in your life, but now add on knowledge. Don't neglect virtue. When you already have knowledge, now add on to it self-control without neglecting knowledge and virtue. And then it keeps going on. It means you keep adding on and adding on. And after you have all seven, you are able to practice all seven. Make sure you do not neglect any single one of these virtues, any single one of these qualities because they are very important for your faith. Now, what do each and every one of these supplements mean? How does it help our lives? We're going to look at each and every one of them, all seven of them. We're going to look at them very quickly. What are some necessary faith supplements? The first one, again, again is very small, all right? So I'm just going to read it out for you. The first one, virtue. What's the definition of virtue? The dictionary defines virtue as high moral standards. High moral standards, not just normal moral standards, very high moral standards. And Peter says, do your very best to have virtue. That means as a Christian, we need to demonstrate, not to ourselves alone, but we need to demonstrate to the people around us. An example, a good example in character, in speech, in thought, and in action. As a Christian, this applies to all of us. You know, sometimes people come and talk to me and people ask me, especially the younger ones, they ask me, isn't it very stressful to be a pastor? You cannot really be yourself, you know. And then I ask the person, what do you mean I cannot really be myself? He said, you always have to, you know, be this very holy figure. You know, you, you cannot slip up. You cannot make a mistake. I say, holiness is who I am. It's not just a mask. I put on. It's not just a, a suit I put on whenever I wake up in the morning and I know now I am entering pastoral mode. Holiness is supposed to be who we are 24-7. And I think holiness doesn't just apply to me. It applies to everyone who professes to be a Christian. And I don't think that I am called to a, a higher standard of holiness than all of you. All of us, remember, all of us are called to the same standards of holiness. All of us are called to the same standards of holiness. And that's why Peter says, do your best to practice virtue. Be the best example in character, in speech, in our thoughts, because most of the time people cannot see our thoughts. But then you know your thoughts. Be the best in your thoughts. 
and in action. The second one, knowledge after virtue. Add on knowledge. What is the definition of knowledge? The definition of knowledge is this, an understanding of a subject. An understanding of a subject. And this understanding is not just a very common understanding, not just a basic understanding. Understanding of a subject here means an in-depth understanding of the subject. And that's why Peter says, you need to add on knowledge. You need to know your faith. Ask yourself this question, how well do I know my Christian faith? Sometimes, some people after 20, 30 years of believing in Jesus Christ, the only Bible verse they can quote is John 3.16. And that's sad. I'm not saying the number of memory verses you can quote from memory is a, 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 a symbol or a sign of how well you know your faith. But what I'm saying is this, you've got to know your Bible. You have to know your faith. You have to know everything that relates to your faith. Otherwise, how can you give an answer for your faith? And in fact, this is what Peter was telling the believers in his first epistle when he says, be prepared to give an answer for what you believe in. And I think in today's time, in today's age, it's so important that we know how to answer for our faith. We know how to defend God. We know how to defend the Word of God because the Bible, the Word of God, and our faith is coming under increasing attacks by people who want to constantly deny the truth and the existence of God. And if as Christians, all we can answer to these people is, I know God is real. I know He is real. But they will tell you, how can you prove to me God is real? Well, I know He is real. If that is the only answer we can give to people, we are not prepared to defend God. You know... I, I haven't really been involved in much debates with atheists. But there was this one time and I, I was, I was uh, sitting, uh, not sitting, I was actually preaching in this particular church. And then, very surprisingly, and in fact it caught me off guard, when after I preached and I prayed and I wanted to go down, I thought it's like here, you know, the worship team would come up, lead in a closing song, that's it. I thought I had finished my job. And then I was about to go down and then the, the, the person in charge ran up to the stage and he said, no, 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 stop, stop, stop. Usually we have a Q&A session after the sermon. And if you know me, you know that I don't like Q&A sessions. It's not that I cannot answer your questions. I'm not the kind of person that can so spontaneously give you an answer, even though I actually know the answer to your question. But my friend, who is the pastor of that church, basically he is this very eloquent guy. He can just talk something out of nothing. He's that kind of person. You give him one word and he can form a whole speech for you. He's that kind of person. And in fact, his, his job is a pastor. And at the same time, he goes around debating Muslim scholars. He goes around debating atheists. He goes around talking with cult leaders, debating them. And, and he's this wonderful, brilliant, eloquent guy. But here I am, a person who can only 
answer your questions when you give me time and not in front of an audience, but I had to do it. And, and there was this one particular person that kept challenging you know, my sermon. And the sermon that I had to preach there was a very, very theological sermon because that's what they wanted. That's what the audience wanted. You know, they wanted deep sermons, you know, way deeper than what I'm preaching here now. You know, and, and this guy kept questioning me about my theology on, on salvation. And, 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 and then finally, I, I, I was a bit... <laughs> I was a bit agitated because some of the questions actually I couldn't give an answer because I really cannot understand what he's actually asking me. I don't have to repeat all the questions, but then finally I, I asked him this one single question. I said, are you actually a Christian? Have you actually believed in Jesus? And he said, he wanted to explain, give a very lengthy, I said, no, 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 just give me a very simple, straightforward yes or no. Are you actually a believer? And he says, no. Yeah, I say, well, all your questions that you have asked is actually not valid. I say, because basically, you know about salvation from just what you have read. Your understanding, your perspective of God is basically coming from a perspective of I am anti-God. And I say, you're coming here with these questions not to know but to actually try to defend your stand that I am anti-God. And that in itself makes your question very invalid. I say this Q&A session is for people to improve in their knowledge, not to present your stand. And I think that did very well to silence him. Of course, he looked for me after the service and wanted to continue. But then I found an excuse to get away from him. And my friend looked at me and said, wow, brilliant answer. <laughs> you know, sometimes, and I think this is very common. In fact, most of you who go out into the marketplace, in the context where you are, I'm sure you will get this a lot. How good is your faith? Are you sure this Jesus is real? Are you sure this God is real? What, what, what is this Bible you're talking about? And if all we can tell them is, yeah, it's good, it works for me, um, Jesus loves me, Jesus died for your sin, if all we can tell them is this, and I'm not saying this is not sufficient, but if we cannot continue to give convincing answers based on what we know about our faith, then we need to work on our knowledge of our faith. We need to increase in our knowledge because the Bible tells us that we need to be prepared to give an answer. Knowledge. The third thing you need to add on, and I know we have four more, but we can finish in the next five minutes. Don't worry, trust me. Self-control. The definition of self-control is the ability to control your emotions. And the key word here is this, especially in difficult situations. Self-control is not necessary when everything is good. When your life is smooth sailing, I don't think you have a conflict of faith. But when your life is in jeopardy, when your, your life is up and down and is upside down, that is where self-control is very much needed. Because why? It is during this time 
that you are tempted to give up on your faith. It is during this time you are tempted to say, God, I don't want to believe in you. But then you need to be in control of your faith. You need to be in control of your emotions in difficult situations. Are we in control? Do we have self-control? Especially in difficult situations. If we do not have, then we need to add this on into our lives. Steadfastness. What is the definition of steadfastness? It is this. It is a firm and unwavering decision. Firm and unwavering decision. Steadfastness relates to self-control. When you have self-control, you are a very steadfast Christian. And all of us as Christians, we need to be steadfast. Because when we go through life, there will be many storms of life. In fact, this year started, I think this is one of the, the most stormy beginnings to the year. You know, with the coronavirus, with the, 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 the sudden change in our, our Malaysian political situation. Uh, and, and then, you know, with, with, uh, with the locust plagues and, and with many other things happening all around the world. I think this is one of the most stormy starts to a year. And you know, the question has come up, you know, like what I've said earlier, the question has come up, where is God in all this situation? And especially, you know, I'm not here to talk politics, but especially uh, when, when last week or so, uh, the, there was this huge political upside down in our country. And then when finally, you know, the results were announced and things like that, you go onto social media and you see people posting things that were not very Christian-like. You see people posting things like, God has abandoned Malaysia. Oh, God, is, God has forgotten about us. And this coming from Christian is actually not very nice to see because God has not abandoned us. One change in a nation's leader does not symbolize or does not signify that God has abandoned us. Instead, we should rely on that Bible verse that tells us kingdoms come, kingdoms go, but God remains forever. Nothing can ever change God's position as the rightful king of this nation. And in order for us to have such faith, it requires steadfastness. How can we be steadfast? Anchor your faith in Christ alone. The problem with us when we cannot be steadfast is this. We anchor our faith in men. We put our trust in men. We put our trust too much in certain leaders, certain people. And that's the reason why we cannot be steadfast, because we have substituted God with men. But if you anchor your faith to Christ, you will remain steadfast. Add on godliness. I think I don't have to touch any more about this. Godliness is to conform to God's laws. It is also godly character it is living your life based on god's will it is telling yourself from now on as a believer not my will but your will be done in my life
And then Peter goes on to this. He adds, he says, now add on, brotherly affection. The definition for brotherly affection is this, love for fellow believers. Love for fellow believers. As Christians, we are not saved to become individuals by ourselves. We are saved and we are brought into the family of God. The church, I would always say, the church is never you yourself as individual. You are not the church. Jesus, in fact, told his disciples, the body of Christ comprises of many parts and all these parts come together, make up a complete body of Christ. And that is the church. We are individual Christians that when we come together, we make up this big picture of the church. And as members in God's family, when Peter say, add on brotherly affection, it means we have to love one another. And I know you have heard this many times, but are we really walking in true and sincere love for one another? Loving just a certain group of people or certain people, that's not counted as brotherly affection. That's not counted as love with sincere intentions. When Peter says, add on brotherly affection, it means love one another in this family of God. Treat them as your family. Treat them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And Peter was very much speaking to the context of that time where the church was actually very, you know, was quite split due to the political situation of, you know, impending persecution. Due to the fact that some Christians were, were dragging their fellow believers to court over trivial issues because the economy was bad. You borrow my money, you haven't paid me back and I'm going to bring you to the courts and I let the court deal with you so that you will pay me back what I'm due because the economy is bad. I want to survive. Peter was telling the believers, hey, Walk in love. Do treat your fellow believers the way you would treat your own family members. I think no one here would drag their brother or sister to court even if they haven't paid you a debt. And Peter is telling the believers and telling us, do likewise. Everyone here is your brother and sister in Christ. Love them. Care for them. Watch out for them. And on top of brotherly affection, love. You may think brotherly affection and love is the same thing, but it's very clear. Brotherly affection is love within the family of God. This love that Peter is talking about is to love the world. Once you can properly love inside the church, only then can you properly bring God's love outside of the church. Sometimes we as Christians do things the ballet. We, bring, we try to love outside, but then inside we are backstabbing one another. We are talking bad about one another. We are gossiping. We are having, you know, uh, we are having all this kind of strife, arguments. 
But then on the outside, we try to present ourselves as very loving. It, can, it doesn't work that way. Peter says this, if you want to properly love people outside of the church, it has to start with being able to love one another inside the church. Only then can you bring God's love out of the four walls of the church. And all these things, all these seven supplements of the faith, according to Peter, is this. It makes you effective. It makes you fruitful. An ineffective believer is a believer with no influencing power. An unfruitful Christian is a Christian who has stopped growing. What kind of Christian do you want to be? A Christian that glorifies God, and I want to call the worship team up here right now. A Christian that glorifies God is a Christian that constantly grows, improves, be better. A Christian that glorifies God is a Christian that is effective, that has power. You know, as we reflect on what has been spoken today, and all throughout the, the, the four weeks of this series, I think we have to ask ourselves this question. Do I want to glorify God in my life? Do I want to do it? And if our answer is yes, then I pray that we do as Peter encourages us in verse 10. He says this, Be diligent. Be diligent. In other words, put in the effort to be godly. Put in the effort to possess these seven spiritual qualities that will enhance your life, that will make your life better, that will make you an effective Christian, a fruitful Christian. I pray that all of us here glorify God. I pray that all of us here do not just live to glorify ourselves or maybe even certain people but we glorify God I pray that we glorify the only one who deserves all glory I pray that in this year that even though there's so much uncertainty so many you know pandemics happening and, and around us so many uh, changes sometimes not for the better but for the worse I pray with all that is happening around us we choose to glorify God. We never stop glorifying God because that is the purpose of our lives. We were created for His glory. Let's all stand. And let's, through this song that we've sung earlier, let's make this commitment like what this song says. God, right here, right now, lifted up in my life for all things for all my life I am yours